back with a very special episode, uh, episode 308. We have a really awesome guest to bring, with you, bring to you guys today. Uh, we have Nigel Palmer coming, uh, joining us today. Thanks a lot. Howdy. Really excited for you guys to learn about him. He's an incredible book and a, a wide range of educational resources available to you guys. I'm really excited to talk to you guys about today. Um, we also have Roger from True Aquaponics joining us today as well. Thanks a lot for joining us, Roger. Absolutely. Hi, guys. How's everybody doing? We're doing great. Um, all righty. Um, well, I guess we'll just dive right in. Um, uh, for those of you that don't know, uh, Nigel is actually a, another one of the people that out there that's teaching people about natural farming. But his methodologies and, and background is a little bit different than, than uh, Chris Trump's and Drake's and some of the other people that we've had on the show previously. We're really excited to, for you guys to, to learn all about it. He has a whole bunch of different takes on a lot of the different inputs, a whole bunch of different preparations that are vastly different than anywhere else that I've seen and kind of unlocks a whole bunch of new tools in the toolbox when it comes to natural farming and organic farming that I think that I haven't seen documented or posted anywhere else. So we're really excited and happy to have you on today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Do you want to introduce yourself uh, and maybe tell people a little bit about yourself? I'll get your website up here on the screen. Uh, sure. Um, I'm some guy. Um, I, uh, I'm retired. I, I was an aerospace engineer for about 37 years and uh, um, started growing food when I was about 20 and uh, just to have a garden and uh, gardening got, got real serious at some point uh, because we realized that the food we were growing was far better than the food that we were purchasing in a store. And uh, I started teaching at a school that my wife's taught at that my wife started and uh, learning about how people grew food in days of past. And how did they do it without going to the store and buying things? People have been growing food on the same land for hundreds, thousands of years, and they still grow high quality food. And so how do they do that? Um, and so it took a long time to try and figure these things out. And I started documenting and teaching these things. And it became clear to me that um, these were really important ideas that needed to be shared uh, with everybody around the world. And so I wrote a book and the book is basically a toolbox that talks in the front half of the book. It talks about a, a philosophical approach of, of, of the interface between plants and soil. And it also then talks about recipes. It's a, a bunch of recipes and many of them are KNF type of recipes, um, Jadam type of recipes. And uh, um, try to make it simple so that people can do it in their kitchen. I call it kitchen chemistry. Uh, very simple tools, basically for free. And more importantly, closing the waste gap. This is a really important idea uh, to close the waste gap and um, not use things that are manufactured using petroleum and, and, and other sorts of uh, um, non-renewable things. So really trying to be sustainable in regenerating um, the soil that uh, is around. I live at about a thousand feet in Connecticut 
And uh, the soil here is moraine, essentially. So it has been the same soil that the glaciers put down uh, 10,000 years ago. And there isn't any rivers or anything like that to make the soil nice. So I'm starting with um, some not the best soil in the world. And so how do you turn that into something that's really good using basically your own backyard for a resource? So I don't know, how's that? It's good enough? Oh yeah, no, I'm, I'm super excited. And we also have uh, Chris Trump popping in. Thanks a lot for joining us, Chris. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Good to see y'all. Oh yeah, super excited to have you both here. Uh, I don't think I know two more people that know more about natural farming than two of you. So really excited to, to have you both here. It's super great. Um, so you cover a lot of different inputs. Uh, in fact, I'll just throw them up on the website here. This is what got me really interested when I first stumbled upon you. You have so many different inputs that haven't been mapped out anywhere else that you have available in your book and in your website. Um, and, and I just applaud you for putting this data out there publicly to kind of help everybody out there. I really, really appreciate the work that you're doing. And I was hoping you could tell people a little bit about that and then maybe some of your less traditional um, uh, inputs, because you certainly have a much wider variety than I've seen in, in some of the other natural farming um, uh, sources. Yeah. Um, so this is a database that I put out there um, after speaking to people around the world and suggesting, oh, you, you just get some stinging nettle and ferment it, and you'll have a real beautiful broad spectrum amendment that you can apply on anything, and, and everybody's going to like it. Uh, all your plants are going to like it. And what became clear to me is when the person at the other end of the phone from, say, Pakistan or something said, is there's no stinging nettle around here. Um, and I said, well, what do you have for plants? And then the answer is, well, I'm really not sure. And so it became clear to me that we need a database that anybody can contribute to from anywhere around the world such that we can start gathering information about the plants around the world so that anybody can start looking at what's in their backyard and realizing what's going on. So the purpose of this database is to try and get people aware that there is something in their backyard and it's worth checking out and uh, they can contribute to the database. Also on my website, I have a way that anybody in the world can contribute to this database um, and using, using the same lag, I've worked with Logan Labs over the, over the years and, and got a single uh, uh, methodology for an analyzing these things. And they will take care of customs and all those sorts of things. And uh, so by going through uh, this process, uh, we can start adding to this database from, uh, and, and from using plants or uh, vinegar extractions or whatever it might be from all over the world and make it public so anybody can use it. Um, so that's what the database is all about. And, and it's really important, in my opinion, to share this information because um, this is how we're going to increase people's knowledge about it. So relative to the, the preparations that uh, are on here, um, one of the things that became clear to me early on um, is that plants are uh, mineral, mineral accumulators and they accumulate minerals in different proportions than the minerals that are in the soil. And this is nature's way of actually changing the soil mineral composition. And they do that by certain weeds, if you want to call them weeds or plants growing and bringing minerals up to the surface and then having them deposited on the soil uh, year after year. 
By doing so, the minerals in the soil structure, the top uh, on the rhizosphere actually will change and different plants will uh, change in that soil year after year. Well, so once you start understanding that idea, the next thing is, well, if I wanna make a mineral amendment of a particular characteristic, what I near, merely have to do is observe in nature those characteristics that I'm after, and then I can ferment those plants and draw those minerals out and have something that will mimic that characteristic. Let me give you an example. Um, I'm interested in a mineral amendment that will um, uh, increase the photosynthesis efficiency of a plant. Okay, so where might I find something like that? Well, if I go into the woods and I look around in the woods, those plants that are at the very bottom of the canopy, they have to be efficient at photosynthesis. So there's a good candidate for a plant that might have the minerals that I need to increase photosynthesis efficiency. And those minerals, by the way, are uh, um, iron, manganese, magnesium, and phosphorus. I really want something that's rich in those minerals and that will help me increase photosynthesis efficiency. Well, so off I go around and guess what? I find sassafras. Sassafras around here is very, very low to the ground. It's very low in the canopy. So I thought, hmm, what about sassafras? Well, the other thing you can do is you can look for those of us in the United States, maybe in other parts of the world, we can look at James Duke's database and, and then we can look at what minerals might be available in that database and compare this intuitive idea to the database that's existing in da James Duke's database. So there's another way. So now I get this sassafras leaf and I ferment it. And guess what? It's got high concentrations of iron in it. It's got high concentrations of manganese and magnesium and phosphorus. In fact, sassafras has got very high mineral content of a lot of 18 minerals that I happen to be looking at. And so this is what I use to increase the photosynthesis of a plant. Now, there are different phases of a plant growth. And so I want to uh, um, understand where a plant is and what it's doing, and then take advantage of the characteristics that I want to promote in that plant by selecting uh, uh, mineral amendments that are going to promote those phases of inf phases of growth or the type of plant that I'm I'm trying to grow. For instance, if I'm growing a lettuce or a, a cabbage or something that's not fruiting or flowering, then the way to go is to specifically focus on photosynthesis efficiency. And so that sassafras is a great option for uh, photosynthesis efficiency improvements. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, no, and and I'm uh, I couldn't agree more. I think that there's so much more that we can learn about uh, uh, the different um, additional inputs uh, that are in a lot of these natural farming things that have been taught to us. I know uh, Chris could probably speak to that far better than I could uh, in terms of uh, uh, additional benefits. But I know, uh, like for instance, lactobacillus has a lot of vitamin B, um, for instance, in it, uh, uh, you know, in terms of content. And there's all these different things that we don't you know, really haven't really documented or fully mapped out yet. And we don't really see all the different awesome benefits that these things have beyond, you know, just the stuff that has been proven out already. So it's really, really exciting. Yeah, cool work, Mr. Palmer. Thank you. Um, is there any other um, uh, plant inputs that you found? I know you talked about the sassafras one. That's certainly not one that uh, I've had a chance to experience, but I also know you do simmered extractions as well. And I haven't heard about other people you know, doing those as much. Um, 
I was kind of curious for us to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, so uh, that's something I got out of Jadam. Um, and Jan, Jadam talks about making uh, um, insect repellents uh, by simmering. Um, and uh, so, uh, uh, and Jadam talks about using artichoke, Jerusalem artichoke as a, uh, an insect repellent. So I've made some of that. And I also grow an awful lot of garlic. Um, I really like garlic for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, uh, not only does it taste good and it's loaded with all kinds of wonderful things, uh, but it's got a real high sulfur content in it. And uh, uh, sulfur being water soluble is generally short of the mark in most soils. And it's in, in, in here in New England, it's no exception with uh, all the rain and the snow we get. Um, the other thing I use garlic for is to thwart pests and insects. And so I use uh, the, uh, oh, so let's talk about the recipe. The recipe that uh, I've adopted is a, basically a pound of garlic to a gallon of water. So I might have, uh, you know, three or four or five pounds of garlic left over at the end of the year. And so I'll put that on a stovetop and I'll simmer it for about eight or ten, eight or five to eight hours, something like that. And then uh, uh, strain off the, the hot liquid into a canning jar. Uh, make sure you use a new lid, otherwise it'll leak and turn it upside down and uh, it'll seal. And so now I have these jars of a, a water simmered extraction of whatever it might be. Again, in my case, I've been using artichoke and garlic. And I use that for a whole bunch of different purposes. Um, one of the things that I've been successful in the past is keeping the raccoons and the bears off my peach trees with it. Um, is, and when I have a nice lush growth of grass underneath my peach trees, I'll spray these, the grass with this garlic and the raccoons and the bears seem to stay away from it because they're going to have to go through this grass and they're going to get this stuff on their fur. And when you're in nature, you don't want to run around smelling like garlic. Um, and so they generally, and these are deterrents. They're not, they're not going to work. If the animal's hungry, they're going to go and get it. But um, one of the approaches that I have in, in my garden space is to make sure there's a lot of food for animals. And so I'm hopeful that I can use a deterrent idea in order to keep animals away from my plants rather than, you know, a, a shotgun, for instance, or, or something like that. Um, so garlic works for that. And I also use it in the winter as a foliar spray on my fruit trees and my uh, uh, berry trees uh, to um, uh, knock off insects or fungus that might be um, happening in the wintertime. Um, yeah, so those that's that's basically what I use those for, and um, I have not used it specifically for the uh, sulfur content that I want, but uh, I can would imagine a, um, a little bit more of a dilution rate than what I use to for pest and insect control would uh, make it a really good source of sulfur. Have you found any other really interesting nutrient results um, in terms of content? I know I was really blown away by the silica content in. Um stinging nettle ferments <clears throat> with some of the work that I've done. Um, have you found any other interesting bioaccumulators uh, in your work? Yeah, so um, so I've, I've listed some of the things in my website and I'm constantly experimenting with things, looking at new plants and, and trying to figure out what's in there in an effort to um, try and get higher concentrations of certain minerals and try and understand what the balance of them are. are. Um, she's, uh, let's see, one that might interest you. Uh, also, uh, in my garden, I have uh, quack grass as a weed, or I used to have quack grass as a weed in my garden. And um, 
Quackgrass is is a is the bane of uh, of many uh, gardeners, farmers, uh, and everybody doesn't like it. And so, well, the first thing I thought of when I found this quackgrass in my garden was, well, that's probably what my garden needs. If nature is growing quackgrass in my garden, it's probably the quackgrass is doing something to the soil to help the garden. So I started pulling the quackgrass and then I fermented it. And uh, um, and lo and behold, I find that the quackgrass has very high amounts of silicon and manganese in it. And I think if you look in the tables, it's, I can't remember if it's in my book or on the website, but you'll you'll see the content of manganese, uh, uh, contents of minerals in quackgrass. And so I thought to myself, well, if the soil is um, is deplete in in some thing and the weeds that are growing there are probably trying to help the soil why not use that as a um as a a, a fermentation as a mineral source to feed uh your plants oh yeah you have it up there let's see quackgrass so yeah there's a couple there this is where um i'm using quackgrass and i'm using the rhizomes here and i use beer to break down the the low alcohol content in the in the beer to break down the root structure a little bit and then i'm going to ferment that um, uh, on top of that to uh, get those minerals out of it and then if you look i went the next step and now i'm using vinegar to extract minerals from that as well and um if you can scroll up just a little bit, Chris, so we can see the minerals at the top. Yeah. And then scroll down so that, yeah, perfect. So this is something that's really interesting. Um, and what I found is that as you uh, continue to process some of these things using these techniques, usually what happens is the mineral content and things go down. But sometimes the mineral content actually goes up. And let's take, uh, what's an interesting one? Uh, let's look at silicon, for instance. And if you go down silicon here, you can see the original fermentation, there was about 7.1 parts per million. But then when you go and use uh, the vinegar extraction, it goes up to 27.9. And then the second vinegar extraction goes up to 30. So this is a way of actually getting more minerals out of a particular uh, product, a, a particular weed in this case. And then the other thing that's really cool here, and this is a characteristic I've noticed a lot. If you look at boron on this one, if the boron is 0.19, uh, yeah, perfect. So the boron is 0.19 uh, for just the, uh, the F FPI, and then it goes up to 1.59, and then it almost doubles again to 2.43 with the second vinegar extraction. And so I found that multiple vinegar extractions actually increases some of the uh, 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 concentrations of some minerals, in particular boron. Um, and uh, we all know how important boron is. Um, so this is a way to actually get a higher concentration of something um, by using these processes over and over again. I'm just looking at your data here. I mean, this is pretty wild with the potassium almost doubling. You have the manganese, which is, at, you know, goes from 2.16 to 56. Yep. That Who would have predicted that? Like, that's mind blowing. It is mind blowing. And when I see numbers like that, I wonder if the uh, the actual um, analysis process is correct. Right. So we're looking at sample size. That's, Very small. That's what comes up for me is like, is it there, but in a different form? And we just don't have a good way of analyzing it, you know, that our 
our data, you know, extraction tool until it's suspended in vinegar, it doesn't get recognized because it's got an extra, you know, um, extra part to the equation. And then it gets kind of um, compromised to the point where it's testable. You know, that's a really great comment. Um, when I was going through the process of trying to find a lab to actually do the analysis uh, of, of some of these amendments for me, I went through some, uh, I'll call them gyrations. Um, and I found one lab, I was paying an awful lot of money for this one lab to um, do these evaluations for them for me. And um, I sent in uh, fermented plant juice, a bunch of them, and they came back to me and they were telling me there was no calcium in just about any of them. And I thought to myself, how can that, if there's anything in these things, I know there's a boatload of calcium in it. And so what came to my mind was, okay, just to your comment, um, uh, Chris, Chris, right? Yeah. So to your comment, I, um, I was talking to my friend, John Kempf, and we were thinking about, okay, maybe the form of calcium was not recognizable by the analysis technique that this lab was doing. And so, um, so yeah, there's a, there's a lot that if there's, if there's anything that I've learned about all this stuff is we don't know anything. The more I learn, the more I learn that there is just so much more to be learned. And so when I see numbers that jump that much, I question, okay, what's really going on here? Um, yeah. Well, that and, and the other, the other curiosity, um, not to, um, you, you have a premise that if, if the, the weed is taking, you know, your, your, um, I forget what the weed was called. That is a bane there. You probably call it something else in different parts of the country, quack grass that, you know, if it's taking a lot of that, it may be that the balance is wrong or something. And there's, there's an abundance of this material, which allows this thing to grow like crazy because it eats it like crazy. And therefore, bringing in some of the balancing uh, minerals could um, inhibit it or, you know, I just wonder if, if it, it's accumulating a ton of that, wouldn't that mean that there's a ton of that to accumulate? Um, and uh, maybe it's just thriving on imbalance rather than it being uh, giving. Uh, it may be that it taking it away and converting it into nitrogen and all of that could be and anyways, I'm just like wondering like, oh yeah, that's cool that that's a, I really like your, your reasoning, your, your kind of wondering at nature, you know, what are you doing here and how does it work and how can I, um, I think that's, um, that's the, the way that the whole world uh, can, can advance past the stuckedness of uh, knowing what we know only. But um, yeah, I wonder like, about that accumulator being representative of a deficiency or an abundance or um, some sort of balance issue. I, I love it though. I think it's really good questions and I love your, your, um, your mineral spreadsheet. It's fun. It's a lot of work. Yeah. So the other thing that's a, that's part of the equation that's almost never talked about is the biology in the soil and um, the relationship between the plant and the biology. And when you start learning about that, you recognize how powerful the biology is, but then you start recognizing how in control the plant is if, of that biology in the soil. There's a guy that's been doing some research, his name's James White, 
And he's actually shown that the seed of a plant has biology in it already. And that the biology actually resides within the root hairs of the plant. And that biology is released by the root hairs into the soil to go and mine minerals. And then it's reabsorbed by the root structure and then is eaten and the minerals removed from it. And so this research is, is showing that the plant is actually using soil biology to mine the minerals around it. And as the biology becomes more productive and more um, active, let's say, for lack of a better other word, then these mineral accumulations become exponential. And this brings us to the one plus one equals 10 kinds of conversations. And so by stimulating the soil biology, which um, is another aspect of the tools that I like to use and try and figure out, um, uh, you can further uh, um, extrapolate the, not only the accumulation of minerals within plants, but also then the, uh, uh, the, the um, leaching, if you will, by vinegar extraction or, or fermentation of those minerals into uh, usable products. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I probably lean to the fix the biology and the minerals, the minerals will get balanced uh, almost passively in that, in that root interaction zone, but I, um, you're, you're not, you're not alone in, in pursuing the accumulators as the, um, you know, the, the plant food. And, um, I think there's a, there's a world of work to be done there. So hats off in, uh, in getting that work going. It's good yeah. stuff. So even when you think about, uh, the soil biology, I mean, think of even your compost piles and things like that. The biology, the, either the fungus or the bacteria or the archaea that are living in the soil or in the compost pile, they need these trace minerals as well in order to function and uh, do as well as they possibly can. So mineral deficiency is not restricted to just plants, but it's also restricted to the biology that's in the soil or in the compost pile or wherever it might be. We had a, a couple of questions from chat here. I thought I'd, I'd throw up here. Um, what is your a favorite way to process horsetail? Um, the easiest thing is a fermentation. Um, I have not tried a straight vinegar extraction with horsetail, but I've gone, I've done vinegar, uh, uh, the fermentations, and I believe that data is in my database. I think you, if it's not on the website, it's in my book. Awesome. That's, that's really cool. Uh, actually, let me look here. I was in Ireland and there were guys with your book in hand. Pretty Is cool. Great. I hadn't, I hadn't, I hadn't seen it before that trip. That's where you learned about it in Ireland. I, I learned about the book you wrote. Yep. Great. Yeah. The, uh, the online program that I've been teaching has been, uh, attended by, uh, four, four continents. Uh, it's really fantastic to get, people from around the world to start talking about these ideas and, and learning about what they're doing in different uh, um, locations. Uh, it's really fun. Really cool. We had an, someone else ask about common couch. If that's another one uh, that maybe you're familiar with, if not, well, that's okay too. No, I'm not familiar with it, but uh, 
Um, if it's something that's abundant in, in somebody's growing space, then I'd recommend fermenting it and uh, analyzing it. And I think that person will be amazed to realize that's probably what their plants need. Oh, for sure. And I think that it's uh, the reason why I, I wanted to get you on is because I, I love the idea of, of KNF being you know, kind of this machine that you can use to process inputs and make them more bioavailable and taking what you, you, you kind of combining the permaculture aspects of just whatever's on the property, you know, goes into the machine and out comes the, the thing, as long as you balance it right and, and work on it and map it out. It, it's not just shooting in the dark either. You, know, you actually have to know what you're doing or you can create a very toxic situation if you, if you misuse it, but it does, it goes for anything, right? Any, any inputs you're using to grow plants, you can totally do the same thing. It's not exclusive to, to natural farming in any way. Yeah, when you think about what we're doing here, um, it's really homeopathy. I mean, so these fermentations that we're applying, we're applying it uh, concentrations of one to a thousand or one to 500. And uh, you can definitely overdo it. You, and when I first started out, I'd you know, put out a foliar spray and think like most normal human beings, more is better. And uh, guess what, it's not. <laughs> No, not in natural farming. More is not necessarily better. It's all about balance. It's cool. You brought up so a good what point. Is, what is your vinegar extraction process? What are you doing after you've FPJ'd it? Now you add it to vinegar, the FPJ? Well, so um, um, I, I use vinegar for, um, for processing hard things, bones and shells and uh, things like that. Um, and I'll also use it for ex further extractions of uh, harder to, I'll call it digest things. Um, vinegar is a, a wicked, wicked, great product. Uh, the neatest thing about vinegar is you can make it yourself. Um, anybody who's tried to make wine and failed made vinegar. And so, uh, you know, anybody can make bad wine. And that product is a great product for um, uh, leaching minerals. Uh, let's see, vinegar extractions, where should I start? So the other thing that's cool about that is um, just about anybody can find those products for free in their backyard. Um, eggshells, there's a restaurant down the street that serves breakfast. It's got eggshells coming out of their ears. You can go and pick those up for nothing because they throw them out and they'd be more than glad to give you their eggshells. Um, I've become friends with some restaurants, uh, I uh, um, forage mushrooms and I give them mushrooms during mushroom season um, and, you know, get friendly with them. And, and, and these guys are, they're just a wonderful bunch of people anyway. And uh, I asked them if they'd save their oyster shells and, and shrimp shells for me. And uh, I take those home and I roast them up and I crush them and I add them to my soil or my compost pile. And I also make extractions with them. And so now we're talking about another realm of fermentation, uh, sorry, of extraction. Um, and what's really cool about these is you're going to get really, really high concentrations of things, specifically phosphorus and calcium. So when you use vinegar to leach out minerals, um, let's talk about uh, bones for a minute. So in our house, we get those bones uh, from the cow and my wife makes like wicked 
tasty bone broth and we make soup out of that stuff. And after those bones are done making soup, then I get the bones and I cook them in the, on a grill and cook them down. And then I use those bones to uh, extract minerals using vinegar. And what's really cool about cow bones is they have a very, very high uh, phosphorus content as well as some calcium. When you look at eggshells and oyster shells, they have very high calcium content. Now, why is that important? Well, if you look at a plant, let's go back to phases of influence for a minute here. So we, we've talked about uh, photosynthesis efficiency and how to increase photosynthesis efficiency. So now how do we incorporate uh, the, uh, um, um, the improvement of flowering and fruiting? Well, if you look at textbooks, you're gonna find that when flowers are flowering, they want a high concentration of phosphorus. So all of a sudden now I have in my toolbox, this vinegar extraction of cow bones that has high amounts of phosphorus in it. So I can get my plants to flower. I think some of you guys are into flowering if I'm not mistaken, by using vinegar extractions of cow bones and the high phosphorus content to get your plants to flower. I've actually have plants where they're not flowering, they're not flowering. It's like, come on guys, it's time to flower. And they don't, and I apply a full foliar spray of uh, vinegar extracted bones and get that phosphorus on there and they explode with flowers. Yeah. Well, now I have a way to influence the plant during different phases. And so once those flowers come along and now they're fruiting, I want to get the calcium in there, right? So calcium is really hard to get in there um, because calcium is very poorly mobile in the phloem flow. So if you're foliar spraying and relying on the phloem flow, for those of you who are not familiar, the phloem flow is the flow of sap through a plant through the leaves and a photosynthesis occurs. And that flow moves from the leaves to the sinks, the fruits, uh, the new shoots, the roots, shoots, and the root exudates. And so there's your phloem flow. Now you can still foliar spray with the eggshells and the uh, high calcium products to get calcium into the leaf and you'll get it there, but it doesn't translocate very well in, in the phloem flow. So now you're talking about a situation where you might be better off drenching that plant um, using um, uh, these products. Uh, in other words, you're just watering the plant and you get that calcium into the root structure where the water is. And so now it can be absorbed through the xylem flow, which it does readily. And so that's how you're going to get your calcium into your plant so you can facilitate fruiting. So now I've got my pear tree hanging out there. First of all, I like to feed my pear tree fermented plant use of pears because guess what? The pear is the quintessential nutrient for a pear tree. And so generally I wanna do that, but now I'm getting near flowering and things like that. I'm gonna provide a, a foliar spray of uh, bones, vinegar extracted bones to get that phosphorus in there and facilitate flowering. And then once the thing's flowering and rolling along, I'm going to give it some eggshells or some oyster shell vinegar extractions and get that calcium in there for filling fruit. So I think that there's your toolbox there on a 35,000 feet is phases of influence. When that plant starts out as a newborn seed, you wanna give it everything you possibly can because the development of the seed in the first couple of years of that plant's life is going to define the health of that plant. That pretty well is it, just like a human being. The first two years of development of a human being pretty well is gonna define many of the cognitive capabilities of that human being. Same with a plant. So you wanna give it everything it can when it's a seed. So I like to feed the plant 
fermented plant juice of that fruit from that plant, because I know that's what nature does. The pear tree falls on the ground and the pear is going to feed the seed when it grows up again. Well, hello, how can you do better than that? And so I think that's a great way to start. Now you've got the teenage years of that plant, right? It's all green and leggy and stuff like that. You want to promote photosynthesis. And so I've already told you about that. And now you're starting to flowering. So now you can start using these things to flower the thing. And then you're fruiting and blah, 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 blah. You got it, right? There you go. It's intuitive and it's, it's just about free. And you get to close waste gaps. Rather than paying to have stuff shipped all over wherever and mined by whoever, probably not at a decent wage, you can make it at home and you can, you can close these waste gaps. I'm a big fan. I like it a lot. So what do you do um, to extract the hard to extract things like um, a rooty or a knobby plant? You've FPJed it. I see you have these series of extractions on the same material and then you see the amount go up what what are you doing with the vinegar there well so that all started with uh uh knf's herbal nutrient um i made some the the herbal nutrient uh what are the five herbs uh, cinnamon and angelica root and garlic um and uh i don't know licorice I root licorice root and there's one more in there it'll come to me but ginger you got it. Thank you very much. Appreciate that, Chris. And so um, I made that and it became really obvious to me when going through that process. If you go through that process, um, KNF will tell you that when you've got the hard stuff, you add a weak alcohol to it. Um, they recommend rice wine. Um, I found a, a nice clean lager, uh, either an organic lager or something made in Europe because they have a little bit higher standards for making beer than we do here. And so that kind of loosens stuff up. And if you follow that same kind of idea, the next thing they do is use uh, sugar to make a fermentation out of it. And then the next thing they use vodka to uh, tincture the thing. Okay, that made, that's, there it is, you're done. So now you find something like the, uh, the, the roots, uh, the rhizomes of, of quackgrass. Okay, you just add some beer to it for a bit and you loosen it up and then you add the fermented, uh, the sugar and ferment it. And then I, I, I just took it a different step rather than going to uh, uh, organic vodka to tincture it. I went right to vinegar um, to extract that way because vinegar is cheaper. Um, and I, I hate, I hate the, I want to do this with as, as less money and less input from mechanical means as possible. And vinegar is great for a whole bunch of other reasons. A, vinegar has a, is really acidic, so it has a lot of hydrogen atoms in there. And hydrogen atoms are really great uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, so I think that just with those simple principles, um, you can figure out how to do anything and start experimenting with it and then do the analysis that we've talked about and learn what the heck we're up to. You don't think that we um, lose some potential essence extraction by not using alcohol? Well, so if you try and ferment um, the rhizomes from quackgrass with sugar, there's not enough moisture in it to get any liquid worth a damn. No, I, I understand the rehydrating the beer. Okay. Um, Maybe I missed your question. But I, I, guess, I guess the vinegar... Um, compared to alcohol in the tincturing process, you don't think we lose some of the maybe beneficial biochemicals. They're not 
broken down by the acid in a different way than they would be by just the alcohol extraction. So that's easy. I don't know. Right. Right. You don't know. So this is one of my favorite. Tell people, try it. Go ahead, man. Let me know what you find out. And that's what we're doing, right? We're all experimental gardeners. That's what's going on here, man. Yeah. And and this is how we talk about it. And somebody's going to get a firecracker up there, you know where, and they're going to go and try it. And if they're really hit, they'll share it and publish it so that we can all learn from these things. Absolutely. Yeah, that was, um, we, we talked a little bit about this before the show, but that was, that exact thought was, uh, was the the spawn of the the open nutrient project that I've I've launched on my website, which is very similar to what you're working on. And I'd love to talk with, about this with you offline about trying to map out a lot of this stuff and giving people resources for for a lot of these things and, and links to good people that that have done this and, and have resources out there. Um, and, and then linking that all back. So for calcium inputs, you know, looking at average minimum content based on Latin names so that if people are looking at this in a different language, it's understandable. And then linking back to the source material so that, you know, everyone, everyone's, uh, you know, can further analyze it and then, you know, honoring the people that put together the data. So um, definitely something that I'm, I'm, once I learned what you were doing, I was like, man, I got to get this guy on the show. We are so much on the same wavelength of trying to map out these different resources and providing the test kits and everything like we have on our website uh, as well. Um, uh, so that people can test this either in-house if they want to do it that way or sending it off to, you know, J.R. Peters or MMI Labs or any of the other people that are out there, uh, uh, you know, depending on, on who it is that they're working with or Logan Labs is another one. Um, and then also, too, with the EPA limits as far as legal limits for, for that stuff uh, in terms of toxicity and um, all the MPK values for the, you know, your, your different organic inputs and all those things with links back to the source material. Um, but also very similar to what you're doing with the forms uh, for, for data input if people want to submit their own stuff or... Uh, looking at the original database uh, or the, you know, the aggregated database, we have Moringa ferments, we have stinging nettle and seaweed in the database right now from, from user submissions. And um, we just launched this about a month or two ago. So we're still working on getting all the kinks out of it, but uh, it's, it's very much in the same vein of what you're trying to work towards. Once you kind of realize all this stuff, in fact, I talked to Chris about this idea a long time ago, of trying to map out all these different things and trying all these different microbes and just seeing what you get. Um, and, and uh, I kind of realized that there's no way that any human being, regardless of the amount of money and resources they'd ever have, could ever accomplish that. This is something that has to be crowdsourced. There's too much data. And not only that, when you have crowdsourcing, you can get people to kind of peer review it, point out things that are wrong. Like Chris talked about, hey, what if you just had a ton of manganese in your soil and it's hyperaccumulating that? I think that's one of the things people often forget about horsetail um, when they're talking about adding silica to the garden is that horsetail is also a great heavy metal bioaccumulator. You should never take it from something downstream from like mine tailings or something like that, which is common in Colorado. So you do have to be you know, mindful of your environment, but I think it's um, kind of something that takes kind of an army to, to, to really build out. You kind of have to have a whole community of people working on this and, and looking at it from a bunch of different angles with a bunch of different soil types to kind of get an average uh, to, to kind of bring this together. But I think if we don't put together these types of tools and resources and databases for people to have a place to start off with, they're never going to be able to get to those types of, of answers. So I think this is really cool what you're doing. And, and, and I hope to kind of work with you offline afterwards uh, in the future to kind of combined forces. Uh, we were talking to Matt Powers earlier today. Uh, uh, or I was talking to him this morning. I know Chris was talking to him earlier today too about a similar type of thing he's doing with, with microbes. And, and it's cool to see all these different people in the community working on different components 
of the same machine trying to map out all this stuff. It's really cool. Yeah. We got to do a good bit of mapping of um, IMO. We sent uh, IMO samples from uh, two of my students and I sent one from a project in Colorado and um, we got to see the kind of um, breakdown of how much fungi and how much bacteria and the different species and um, that's like barely scratching the surface at the beginning of a, of a series of questions to ask on how are we accomplishing diversity in this process and uh, it's really incredible one just seeing the massive amount of diversity that's accomplished but also you know being in, of an era of a time where we can start to ask that question how does this work what is it doing and and um, what do we have here even though I love the humility of saying, I don't know, and nature's doing it and we can simply play with uh, what nature does well without having to rip it apart and know every detail because I think it's bigger than us. Ultimately, it's just, um, it is um, massive, massive in its uh, scale, which is humbling, but uh, it's really fun to ask and to, and to ask together, to ask with friends, mm. very cool. Yeah, when I, uh, I've, I've, I've had my IMO4 evaluated and one of the things that I like to do when I make IMO4 is I do a soil test on the soil that I do the, the IMO3. And so what I've been able to do is, so what I, what I started out trying to do is, okay, I want to be able to change all 18 minerals by how I make my IMO3 and my IMO4. So I start off with a soil that I'm adding to my IMO4. And I, then I go make my IMO4, and then I'll do a soil test on my IMO4. And my goal is to change every single number on the column. And I've been able to do that by adding different mineral amendments and rock dusts and other things. And so the question at the table for me started off with, okay, how do I change the mineral content? How do I, how do I dial in an IMO4 so that the minerals are A, either balanced where I want them to be, or B, improved because I know I'm putting them on my soil, which is terrible in these characteristics. And I was able to move the numbers. I was able to move the needle on all of those things, which is really fun. So the next thing is, I, then I start looking at the biology of it all. So I sent my IMO4 to a lab and they came back with this report. Well, I got to be honest with you, I was really, really disappointed with the report because it suddenly became clear to me that of the million types of bacteria that are out there, of the million types of fungi that are out there, these guys only have the ability to measure a few of them, relatively speaking. And so I question the value of the biological evaluations that are done by uh, um, our abilities today and the true- Inexpensive abilities. Yes. They're, they're starting to be able to do it, but we can't afford to just send away a lab. And not only that, they're, they're not testing for, I don't know what percent of the stuff that's in, they don't even test for Archaea, for instance, right? Right. We know that's an abundant uh, uh, life in the soil. so. I, I really struggle with the whole conversation about analyzing my IMO4 biologically because 
We don't know most of the, we only know 10% of the stuff that might be in there. Yeah, true. Absolutely. And it works. And it works, man. Wow. Right? Not only that, I, I know both of myself included, uh, uh, all of us have seen um, IMO deal with different pathogens and other issues that we're told that, oh, you need to get rid of that soil or, oh, you need to burn everything or, oh, you need to deal with this crazy way. And IMO just fixes it. So the other recipe that is in my book that I also got from Jadam um, is, uh, I, I call it leaf mold biology. And that's the one where you're taking a potato and a handful of leaf mold, throw it in a bucket of rainwater, mix it all up, and all of a sudden you get a foam on the top. That stuff is amazing. So when so you, let's say you've got a, a problem with a fruit tree or you've got some fungus problem or bi- any kind of biological problem. You spray that on the, on the tree and it, it disappears. It's, it's just amazing to watch it work. How does that compare to liquid IMO in terms of biology? Because liquid IMO is more fungal dominant, correct? Yeah, you can't, you, you can't produce the, you can't get the fungal life going in the JMS, the leaf mold um, and potato and salt. Um, lots of yeast, lots of great bacteria, tiny bit of fungi, whatever you start with will be, you could potentially keep some of those spores, but, but yeah, it's still, I mean, it's kind of like the cannabis guys that spray LAB to clean up, you know, um, uh, powdery mildew and stuff. It's, it's the same effect he's talking about as it's a, uh, the effect of, uh, you know, thriving, big, healthy bacteria and yeast going to town and cleaning up. So I, I try and explain it like this. I, it's, it's like a society and you got a bunch of bad guys in society, right? So all of a sudden you throw a bazillion different people into that society and they all have to fight for the resources that are there. And so those bad guys all of a sudden have to compete for the resources. And guess what? They're going to fade away and they're not going to be able to be as dominant as they used to. So you're balancing things by uh, adding these uh, uh, huge amounts of, uh, of biology to those situations. And, uh, and I don't know, it's a good idea. It's just a great idea. Have you uh, played with liquid IMO, Nigel? Yeah, so I'm not sure what you mean by liquid IMO. Um, what? Tell me, tell me what you think. What the, it, it's it's like an actively aerated compost tea with microbes. Yeah. Uh, with with IMO four and then all the nutrients from the natural farming process. Got it. Uh, and a specific ratio. So I stay away from aeration um, for a bunch of reasons. The first reason is that's using an energy source that I don't care to incorporate. Um, I don't, nature doesn't go around with aerators and, and, and bubbling stuff around. So um, I don't do that. And it's, it costs money, it costs energy. Um, and so I don't like it for that. And the other thing is that it's promoting uh, aerobic uh, life that is not real in the soil. And when you, as soon as you take that stuff and put it in the, in the soil, there, there's not a terrible, a high amount of, of oxygen in that soil. And so a lot of that stuff dies. Now, it dying is a great food source for fungus and things like that. So it's going to promote um, some, some fungal activity and things like that. But I, I just can't see bubbling something over here and then putting it in the soil over here. So, it, that, so I don't do that kind of stuff. I guess that's the easy way. But what I do do is I goof around with IMO2. 
right? So most people take IMO2 and what they use it for is making IMO3. But I have a, um, a refrigerator full of IMO2 and I use that for different things because that's got all kinds of stuff in it. That's got the arcade. Absolutely. That's got the whole shooting match in it. Right. And so I think it's really important for people to experiment with that and uh, see what you can do with that. Because when you put that in the ground, that's where it wants to be. That's that's its environment. So when you uh, so I'll I've tried soaking seeds in that stuff. I'll try applying it directly to the soil. Um, But keep in mind, it's a relatively fragile uh, biological product, I'll call it. And it requires housing, food, air, water, whatever it might be for it to thrive in the environment that you put it in. Yeah, I I think I um, disagree on the uh, applying aerobic microbes to the surface of leaves and trunk and soil being somehow unnatural because most of our aerobic microbes love that top couple inches of the soil they have all the oxygen where the leaves are. It's just what's unnatural is that much air in water, um, you know, forcing the air to a atmospheric level in water um, isn't typical, but microbes also use water to do all their processes. So having all the oxygen and all the water, they do grow like crazy in a really short amount of time. And then applying them to a aerobic atmosphere um, on the surface of um, plants, leaves, and tree trunks, and soil is the natural environment of all our aerobic microbes. Yeah. I get it. But um, yeah, I uh, IMO two. I, I always say is the uh, the jewel or the the sweet sweetest thing of all the preparations in natural farming because it's. Um, you know, there's no, there's no inoculum you can buy that's anywhere near the value, you know, spend whatever money you want. You can't go to the store and purchase an IMO2 of, of equal, anything even close. Um, and you can make it so simply and any farmer now, even if they're into compost or whatever, they could just water their compost with, uh, with, with microbes that are diverse and abundant and, uh, yeah, I think it really is a very, very special thing for farmers to be able to have on the shelf. Yeah. Now, Nigel, do you do traditional IMO collection with the rice as it was, I guess, originally taught by the, you know, uh, Master Cho and all that? Or do you, have you experimented? I know Chris has done some experimentation, but have you done any experimentation with different inputs as far as results? Uh, something I, I, I get a lot of questions about and I'd love for, you know, kind of have the two people that can answer this question better than just about anybody else out here. I figured it's a great question to ask. Yeah. So I basically use rice. It's just so easy. And uh, whatever's left over, I eat, you know, it's, it's just, it's just too easy. And, you know, if I lived in a different part of the world and if I had a different starch that I wanted to use, I tried, I've tried potatoes um, and have not been really successful, but I didn't mash them up or, you know, I didn't, I didn't really, I didn't put my heart into it, I'll say. Um, But uh, yeah, rice is just too easy. What have you tried, Chris? Uh, I agree. I think rice is, is wonderful. Um, I've, I've played with uh, some things. Oats are really good. They have a similar fat, fat protein profile to, to rice. 
and uh, they they can work. So uh, even oatmeal. The the key is uh, where with rice you can cook it kind of al dente and keep it in its structure. So there's lots of airflow in that in that rice column. Um, some of the other things you might use um, kind of mash together and something mashed together isn't going to allow that um, bloom to happen in the same way um, because you have uh, two solid in the middle, if you will, um, which will get hit by the anaerobic uh, bacteria and liquefy and then they take over the space. So the key, whatever substrate you use, I think rice is um, very good. Um, it's a very good um, nutrient profile for fungi specifically. Um, no. But oats, oats would be a close second. That's interesting. I, I use oats as a cover crop and uh, I like growing oats. It's, it's, uh, it moves the soil in a redox direction, which is really, really powerful for soil. Um, and probably one of the best cover crops that's available to us, in my opinion. Um, normally, I plant my oats after my garlic and, and it only gets to the milky stage. And then my wife will tincture the milky oats uh, for... Uh, medicine, but uh, I do every now and then plant oats. What's the medicine of uh, milky oats? Uh, you'd have to talk to her about that. I'm uh, that's, okay. that's but milky oats is a very, very powerful uh tincture. Um, um, it's good for uh, I think the heart. Um, and uh, I don't know that, that's her that's her field of expertise rather than mine, sure. yeah. But cool. uh, I've got some oats kicking around that I grew and, and, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know if I try and I'd rather eat them, I guess, <laughs> I don't know. but I, I agree. Rice is a, it's just too easy. Um, and, and I appreciate your commentary. A lot of people that I talk to who try making IMO one for the first time, they suffer from the, the red and the blue blooms. Um, and uh, um, they aren't successful. And, and I, I agree that harder rice and that airspace is really a big deal for um, keeping, making a success, a successful bloom. And, and the air in there is also very important. Yeah. Have you guys ever tried like the jasmine rice or any of the more anthocyanin heavy rice? Does that have any kind of positive or negative impact on it? On it? Chris, it sucks. Kind of tried it. Yeah, it sucks. Long grain rice isn't as good. Jasmine rice is terrible. Um, brown brown rice. rice isn't as good. You like yeah. white rice? White rice. Yeah, it's because it's been um, compromised just a little bit in that bleach process. And so it's this ready food. Um, yeah, it just, it works best. It's so, so funny you say that. We just don't have white rice in our house. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's it's not, I, I mean... I grew up in Hawaii, so I like I like eating white rice, but uh, but you think, well, it's better for you. The brown rice is better for you, so better for the micros. But it's actually the compromised um, uh, uh, grain is actually just easier. It just it just makes for a, a more reliable collection. That's great. Good to know. We had another question. Uh, they said, what do you guys think about BIM, which I guess is beneficial, is it beneficial indigenous microorganisms, which I guess is a fermentation process? It's something I'm not familiar with. I had to kind of quick Google it and they asked. I think, I think that's a, um, isn't that a product? Um, yeah, so I think they're talking about the, uh, the Japanese uh, version of all of this. EM, they might call it. 
Is no. VIM something different. Okay. Uh, I so forget. Is, I've heard it before and I've forgotten. So this method, they, they take it and it's similar to IMO, but they're burying it in nylons or in other kind of thing. It's more like the burying subterranean method. Um, I can throw the SOP up here. On the, I actually found one real quick on the Google. I'll throw it up in case anyone's curious. But something that I had only heard of, I think it was on um, Build a Soil's website was the first time I heard about it. But yeah, it's yeah. pretty similar to IMO in general. Cook carbohydrate to check. It looks like it's the same damn thing. Wooden box, it's the same thing. Yeah, it's pretty much the same thing, yeah. Yeah, one to one with sugar. Exact, yeah, it's, it's basically the it's same. The exact same thing. Yeah. So, uh, go back to the top. Oh, sorry. Yeah. So, in um, natural farming uh, literature, um, there, um, Master Cho has these. Um, yeah. So it's it's Gil. So Gil is a student of Master Cho, and um, it's it's not uh it, it's it's natural farming tech um in in korea sometimes especially in winter they're they're carving out a section in the soil and going below and then fully covering it with leaf litter um it's um it works but it isn't necessary um unless it's really cold um otherwise it's probably just easier to do imo uh one but burying it um if it's quite cold like you're getting below 40 degrees at night once you reach that threshold you can't collect imo1 yeah. um it doesn't doesn't matter how hot it is during the day it you get a full stop at that 40 degrees and it just won't work but um if you bury it you can get some of that ambient um heat of the ground which stays at about 50 and uh, that's enough to get you a winter collection sometimes, even when you have really cold outdoors. So um, the burying it isn't some, um, that's definitely from Master Cho as well. It's just um, not typically talked about because it's not necessary. Yeah, in chat, they said it's anaerobically activated IMO2 plus LAB. Uh, it says the, you activate the IMO2 anaerobically, then add the LAB at a one-to-one -one before use. I don't, you're just basically making a super lactobacillus dominant IMO. I don't know why you would do that. It doesn't, you know, um, a lot of what Gil did um, and teaches is what works for him in the Philippines. Um, it, it isn't, um, yeah, it's just, it's just kind of, uh, you know, kind of like Nigel, these, these are the things I'm figuring out that work for me. And um, it's awesome. Yeah, Gil, Gil was one of the first to kind of teach it in English. Um, What's Gil's last? Uh, his, his website is The Unconventional Farmer. I think that's what's so cool about at least uh, someone that came into this actually, thanks to Chris Trump here uh, at the Regen conference, uh, I had a chance to go there and learn all about natural farming and apply it to aquaponics and kind of discover, oh man, when you add IMO to your mineralization tank, my total usable plants parts per million goes up by 80% from the fish waste. So 
that was pretty amazing. And then we later discovered the, the E. coli uh, mitigation effects of lactobacillus in regular doses with, with aquaponics as well, which is super freaking cool. So um, I, it, it's so neat to see all these different people working in their own different realms of natural farming and their own you know, countries and environments and ecosystems and fight, figuring out Absolutely. their own different pieces of the puzzle. I think that's what's so cool about it. And one of the things why I was so happy to have both of you on the show this evening was that both of you are kind of very much experts in, in natural farming, but completely different directions and, and have things that very much complement each other and, and, and can teach all of us. And hey, what might work for, for Chris, I might take 80% of that and 10% from here and 10% from there and, and a couple of percent from Nigel and whatever else with his methods and combine it with works best on your farm. And that, that's really what you kind of have to think about best is that, you know, you have uh, in your garden and your farm, you know, a, a unique space that's going to have different needs than anywhere else. And, and combining these different methods and picking and choosing and, and figuring out all these different components and finding patterns and all this stuff is really kind of the future of all these different things. That's why it's so cool to see Matt working on the microbial um, mapping and, and Nigel working on the fermentation stuff with the different mineral parts per millions and, and the simmering and all these other things. And Chris working with all the different mapping that he's done. And we're all, you know, slowly revealing the this hidden world that we haven't had a chance to fully understand when all of us are focusing on these different areas. It's really, really cool. And I'm super appreciative to have you both on this evening. It's very cool. It's very cool to read the, uh, meet the author of the book they were huh. sharing around in Ireland too. It's nice to share with you guys because uh, um, that's how I learned too. What um is there any other um uh, inputs at all that kind of were really surprising? I know you what's uh, and one that's often talked about is the the WCA uh, from eggshells. You have that on your website here. Uh, I'm just I'm just kind of scrolling through some of the other things. Uh, stinging nettle FPJ. Stinging nettle FPJ is one of the best things for for trace minerals. If you're looking at manganese, molybdenum, all the copper, all that stuff that's kind of harder to get with anything outside of kelp or other inputs that are that way. If you're, if you're, you know, in the Midwest, you don't have access to kelp, right? So uh, it can be kind of a good, great replacement. Yeah, I think that uh, people that are in, in isolated places, I think their best resources might be their local restaurant. Um, I really encourage people to get friendly with the, the people in restaurants that throw away their oyster shells or their shrimp shells, uh, clam shells, whatever they might be. Um, eggshells, all of these different things and using vinegar extraction. I mean, these are closing waste gaps. They're totally free. And um, you start using these things and, and they're profound. They get profound effects. Um, so I think that if there's any message that, uh, that at least I'd like to uh, let your viewers hear about is that they have resources in their backyard that are available. Close waste gaps, they're free. They can make their own vinegar and, and they can have profound effects on their growing environment. Yeah, what a, what a cool thing to be encouraging the whole world to find the, uh, the waste avenues and use them for making the world a better place. Yeah. Is there any... <laughs> Is there, um, what, uh, is there anything else you want to tell people about your book or any of the other unique things um, uh, about it before we uh, wrap up the show here before too long? I know you have a, a workshop coming up as well. You wanted to mention as well. I do. Uh, so um, 
I guess the the only thing I'll say about my book is it's it's divided into two parts. There's one part that talks about uh, a model, a plant soil model, and really trying to give people a context to make decisions in their garden. Um, I speak to people that have been gardeners for, you know, 40 years or something like that. But and they go to the store and they buy something and they put it on the garden, but they really don't have a context of why they're doing it. And so the first part of the book really tries to give people a context and, and talk about the relationship between plants and the soil, talk about the mineral and the biological content in the soil and, and why these things are important. And then the second part is a recipe book. And that's, we talked about a lot of the recipes. And then there's a ton of data and other tools for crushing, uh, using a refractometer, uh, spinning water and, and talking about the energy in water. Maybe that's something worth talking about briefly. I think water is something that's another topic that very few people talk about uh, and is very important. Um, there's all water is different and probably the highest quality water that people have available for them to use is rainwater. And so collecting rainwater and using rainwater is really, really important, especially if you're going to foliar spray. So if you're going to collect rainwater, collect your rainwater and use it specifically for foliar spraying if it's a limited resource. And the reason for that is that rainwater does not have uh, um, um, our carbo uh, carbonates and bicarbonates and sulfates in them. It's not, it's not hard water. And so the minerals that you're putting in there, the, the fermented plant juices and these vinegar extractions have an opportunity to function far better. When you're foliar spraying with hard water, you're, you're behind the eight ball already. You can lose foliar spray efficiency by as much as 70% by um, using hard water. Did you say 70%? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, when, you're, when you're hard water 70, you're, you're behind the eight ball. And so rainwater becomes extremely important for, uh, for foliar spraying efficiency. The next thing I'd like to talk about briefly about water is structuring water. Um, when I first started learning about this stuff, structuring water was something that was really uh, um, kind of abstract for me. And I really didn't get uh, 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 I was looking for the physics associated with, with why structuring works and, and how can I prove to myself that structuring works. One of the coolest books you could possibly read about water is Gerald Pollack's book, Fourth Phase of Water. You guys familiar with that one? Look that one up. Um, fourth Phase of Water. I have not read that one. This will turn your head. What's cool about this is Gerald Pollack has used some of the work of people in the last hundred years who have identified characteristics of water that don't that aren't explained well by uh, classic physics ideas, and he talks about this fourth phase of water. Rather than go into it, I'll, uh, I wrote I wrote a, a, a summary for. Uh, a book review for Acres USA. It was published in the May edition of uh, Acres USA. You can read um, uh, my uh, review of the book there, and it'll give you an idea of some of the uh, concepts that uh, um, are going to turn your head. But the long and short of it is that when we spin water, what many people have talked about spinning water and forming a vortex and having this vortex be a methodology of structuring water. Okay, so I mean, people have been doing and talking about that forever. Not only is it a good mixing technique, but you're also actually structuring the water. And the thing that really turned my head was when Gerald Pollack tells me in his book that when you spin water in a vortex, 
what happens to the temperature of the water? Take a guess. You're going to warm it up because of the movement. Okay. So that's what the classic guy says. Guess what? That's not what happens. The water gets cooler. And so I heard that and I said, nah, come on, give me a break. So guess what I did? I got some water and I put it in a bucket and I let it hang out in my basement for 24 hours. So the temperature was absolutely constant. And I started spinning it and I got the water to go down in temperature. I was able to repeatedly reduce the temperature of the water by four tenths of a degree Fahrenheit. Now the philosophy- Just like a, just like a um, swamp cooler. Pardon me? Like a swamp cooler, air like moving over the surface of water. Yeah, no, no, I, I understand by the same concept, air moving over the surface of water, you have, you, you lose, you lose thermo, uh, you lose heat. No, the physics doesn't work. That's not it. So Gerald Pollack explains it like this. What's going on is that you're actually creating this fourth phase of water. And the, uh, if I can do this in a short period of time, when water is in contact with a hydrophobic, a hydrophilic surface, in the presence of infrared radiation, it actually cleaves off a hydrogen molecule, a hydrogen atom, which goes that way. And you end up with a negative charge next to the surface and a positive charge over there. And this hydrogen and the oxygen form a lattice structure. And so what's going on in this bucket is that's hypothesized is you are creating this structure in the bucket of water. And so rather than all the molecules being random and giving off radiant energy associated with the random motion of water in the bucket, the part of the water becomes structured. And so it no longer radiates the same amount of energy and the temperature goes down. Now that is, a, that's a mouthful. I highly recommend checking that book out because he debunks Brownian motion, osmosis, and many other things and starts talking about phloem and- Did you just say de debunks osmosis? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. And he starts talking. Right. So now we're talking about phloem and xylem flow. And we recognize that the xylem and the phloem are flows through a tube. And so this phenomena of structured water is actually occurring in the tube. And the ramifications of it are wild. Anyway, so as far as ideas go, I put that in your pipe and smoke. Yeah. All right. Well, you use osmosis for IMO2 to uh, pull the water out of the uh, out of the, the microbes' bodies and desertify the environment and bond all the water molecules and chemical bonds with the sugar. The dryness of the sugar is is what uh, what makes it work. So osmosis has got to be working somehow. Check it out. I love to have a conversation with you after you've read that book. All right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I haven't messed with uh, water structure at all. Um, definitely agree, though. I love rainwater for ag use. I think uh, if we could use that, then um, a lot of even just that. Just take all your irrigation and make it rainwater and we'd have a much better scenario worldwide. Yeah, well, a lot of places in the world, use of rainwater is illegal. It's yeah. 
collecting rainwater is illegal. Even in Colorado? Too much, power, too much power in the hands of the people. Even in Colorado? It's, that's, that's a terrible thing. Yeah. The other thing that I'd like to throw out there is the flow of energy and, and flow of energy in the soil and through the plant. The plant, uh, we all live in, uh, uh, we are bathed in electromagnetic radiation, and it's unclear uh, how many of us really start contemplating the flow of energy, electrical energy through plants. Uh, we recognize that there's an electrical potential between the ground and someplace above ground, and plants have the ability to flow this energy through them. And what aspects does this have on all of these things that we're talking about? Um, and uh, we, we recognize that the, the minerals that plants use are, uh, are ionic, um, and so they're charged. And so these electric potentials and these flows of energy uh, clearly have uh, effects on, uh, on our plants. Um, and so I, I've, I think we ought to talk about that as well. Yeah, I think, I think that the, uh, the energy of a, of a farmer even around their around their livestock around their plants is uh can have a huge effect in uh, hawaii culture you say uh if you have bad attitude you you sour the poi when you're making it poi is like a, a staple made from a, a carbohydrate there and uh yeah i think um even the green the concept of a green thumb you know coming for somebody has uh, a way with things and uh you know that that could be that could be highly uh, connected to their you know the way they carry themselves in the world and what what comes out of them. Um, I'm I'm with you. There's there's a huge uh, the whole the whole thing's a, a big uh, big ball of energy, including our our best input, which comes from the sky. I wanted to also mention if you need to store a lot of water on the stealth. Um, you can actually get these wonderful crates. I used to sell these when I worked with Aquascapes. But basically, you can take your walkway, your driveway, wherever, put dig it all out, put the a liner down, put these crates in it. You can park an SUV on these things. Like they hold like six thousand pounds. They're they're awesome. But what you do is they act act as displacement areas, so you can store water underground. So you can basically put these under any paved area, put another liner on top as a cap, basically just like a giant mushroom almost. And then run your rain gutters to it or any other water source that you can collect water and run it right down into the cistern you have underneath water. I used to put these in under, underground for people's walkways and driveways so they had water to top off their ponds come summertime. Yeah, they're awesome if you need to do it on, this, on the DL. So if you need to secretly smuggle your rainwater uh, from your township, uh, that's how you do it. <laughs> How crazy is it that we have to talk about secretly smuggling rainwater? Like that's crazy. Like that's insane. <laughs> but then again, you know. Anyways, I won't get into that. But the whole timeline ever since they killed Harambe has just been horrendous. <laughs> we'll blame that for all the world's problems since 2016. <laughs> Anyways, um, is there any other things you wanted to mention? Uh, as far as I know, you have your your workshop coming up. Did you want to mention that? I forgot about that. So yeah, I got a workshop coming up. Uh, it's uh, uh, it starts in sometime in October. I'm not quite sure when, but I'm actually offering a, an online uh, workshop. This is one I've offered before. I've gotten some really, really positive comments from that, and I'm also offering a live one here 
um, actually in, in my backyard, uh, uh, learning about uh, uh, making most of the products that we've been talking about and, and applying them in the garden. So yeah, that's coming up. Super yeah. cool. Be fun to hang out in your backyard. And if people want to come to that, uh, uh, where is that located? Oh, it's in Connecticut? Yeah, I'm in Connecticut, in, uh, in West Granby, Connecticut. Uh, so it's close to the Massachusetts border. Um, yeah, I, I felt uh, um, I, I felt it's really important to do that. Unfortunately, I have to charge money for that because I do have to pay taxes doing something. Oh, I, I, that's right. I have an online, uh, uh, no, not an online thing. What do I have? I have a, what do you call it? A YouTube. I got a YouTube channel and my YouTube channel has a bunch of uh, videos in it on how to make these things. And um, that's all free and, and people can look at that. And uh, we already talked about the database and I don't know. Yeah. And uh, I, I answer email. If you have any questions, let me, let me know. I'd love to try and help anybody with questions. And uh, I'm glad I met you guys. Well, now I've got someone to ask some questions. Certainly. Uh, okay. certainly Anytime. Certainly stoked to meet you. I'm definitely looking forward to talking to you about uh, databases and nutrient uh, info and all kinds of other documentation. I'm really excited to, to work with you on that and, and talk to you about at least some of the work that I've done. And, and so, in fact, one thing I was kind of, I wanted to throw up real quick. Um, in fact, Chris mentioned this earlier today, um, is the super labs. So this is active. I call it super labs or blue labs, whatever you want to call it. Um, but this is lactobacillus with spirulina and uh, kelp extract uh, in it. And basically it isolates the phycocyanin and a bunch of other wonderful things uh, in the, um, in the serum and allows us to greatly accelerate um, uh, plant growth as well as um, especially injured plants. It really helps with the, you know, repairing damaged plants. So. Wow. Cool. So kind of given a different, given a different food in the LAB process, that food being the spirulina, which you're, it just allows you to cultivate or grow out a different type of organism. Steve, yeah, I do the, have to go, my friend. I'm sorry. Okay. We're, you're fine, we're, we're just I wrapping know. up anyway. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, everybody be sure to check out Chris Trump. Uh, he has a great website, chrisTrump.com. There's all kinds of great resources over there or his YouTube, uh, uh, Chris Trump. He's got a, a ton of great resources as well. See you guys. Thanks so much for joining us, bud. Really appreciate it. Yeah, Nigel, so good to meet you. I, I really hope to meet you in person one day. I hope the same. Thank All you. All right. Bye-bye. Cheers. Well, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I guess we'll wrap up the show here. Um, thank you so much for all you do. Thanks so much for putting out that public database again. You guys can check that out at um, uh, nigel-palmer.com. Uh, let me throw that up on the screen here. Um, uh, you can check him out there. Um, again, huge database of different things as well. Uh, if you go under the uh, mineral amendment section, he has a great book. You can check that out on his website as well. It's got tons of great resources. It's got a link to his YouTube and everything else. So if you're looking to find out more information, definitely check it out. Uh, I actually uh, ordered another copy. I, I had my first one. I was in Africa and I left it over there. So I had to go buy a new one recently, uh, but didn't get here before the episode. So uh, it's okay. I wanted to hold it up, but it, it got delayed on, on shipping, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> it's about uh, it's such as life with the modern post office. You know. <laughs> well, thanks so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to meet you. And I look forward to speaking to you some more in the future.
Yeah, thank you. And again, if anyone's uh, interested and you're in the Northeast, we haven't seen a lot of natural farming um, workshops up there in uh, in the Northeast. You know, if you're in Maine, I know there's a lot of people that listen to the show in Maine. Um, certainly go check them out. He's got a wonderful uh, a workshop and uh, we're really excited to have him on and appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Reminds me, uh, I'm uh, I'm going to be presenting at the Common Brown, Common Ground Fair in Maine. It comes up at the end of September. Wonderful. That's really great. <laughs> Very right. cool. Take care, Thank man. You so much. Take it easy. And uh, you guys can find me at, um, uh, let me pull up the websites here. I forgot to load those beforehand. Two seconds, guys. All right. So you guys can find us over at... Um, apmjclass.com if you want to check out aquaponic cannabis education we do have a special right now for labor day you can use code labor for 75 bucks off the class um, be sure to check that out again it's over over seven days of content now we have more slides that we're, we're uploading as we speak um, then we also have the pest class you can get 50 bucks off coupon code labor at thepestclass.com we have a full length uh uh, organic uh, and all natural farming um, pest control course that you can find out about um, uh, for living soil, aquaponics, whatever else, it is geared towards fish restriction. So, um, you know, everything in it is applicable to uh, soil farming, except we also account for fish toxicity as well. So, Alrighty, guys, thanks for watching. You can find us again next week. Um, we actually have a show on, is it this next week or the week after? Yes, we'll be back on the 6th. So Tuesday, we'll be back with the next episode. We have Natasha from the Aquaponics Association. She's going to be talking to us about her work as well as the Aquaponics Association Conference coming up here in October. Uh, and then we have um, ATG Acres on, on Thursday, who's a, a really great grower out here in Oklahoma. I want to highlight a couple more of those people uh, before I leave uh, for Thailand here at the end of the month. So um, thanks a lot for watching. Um, if you haven't checked out our show yesterday at Dat Grow Show, be sure to check that out. Uh, at Dat Grow Show on the YouTube channel. We had Breeder Steve on along with a whole bunch of other great panelists. Um, it was a really good time uh, as always. Uh, if you aren't familiar, we do have a second show. It's a little more laid back than this show, a little less science focused, a little more cannabis culture focused uh, called Dat Grow Show, Grow Show uh, Dat Smoke Show, D-A-T Smoke Show uh, at on YouTube. All right, thanks everybody. You can find us on SoundCloud, YouTube, iTunes, Spotify,